from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Esther Bradley DeTalley. Esther is an author who has written two books, Without a Net, A Sojourn in Russia, and You Carry the Heavy Stuff. She also has a blog at sorrynat.wordpress.com. That's G-N-A-T as in the small bug. I started the interview by asking Esther where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, which was two houses down from the corner of Ren and Oriole. There were four of us, and the last of us were twins, and I was the youngest. We had a housekeeper and a mother and a father and a dog and a cat, and we were squished in. So it was in late 30s, early 40s. It was during blackout curtains. It was when we saved cans and jumped, jumped on them, and it was before margarine was invented. <laughs> I don't know how many people have that claim. My mother and father were Catholic, uh, Irish, and I think he was sort of English, too, heritage, and it was just something we were automatically introduced to, and in a sense, I had a reverence for it. We didn't go to Catholic school, but we did attend classes, and when we made our first communion... I threw up the wafer in the row, and they had to evacuate it. So, but it was something we just went to Sunday Mass and stayed away from some father's confessional booth and went to the kind of person and stuff like that. Right. It was a busy household. I, th- I guess I liked being Catholic, but at the time, uh, my mother had a friend who was Protestant. I think this is unusual during that time. We, d- we joined some group, not brownies, but bluebirds. So it was noticed. It, there was a distinction, and our housekeeper was Protestant. So we'd say, reader is a Protestant. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we divided things into just two sides, ours and theirs. So what were your interests growing up? Okay, my interests were I was an intense reader from first, I had difficulty reading, but my mother helped me. My mother had tutored uh, Latvian women for free. She was the teacher at my elementary school. But she wasn't my teacher. In first grade, I had trouble reading, but I wanted to read. And once she spent time with me, then, for instance, in the summers, I would go to, down to our library. I'd walk down, and you could get two books out for the morning. I'd go back and read them, and then I could walk down again and get two books for the afternoon. So I was an intense reader, and I suppose I was a romantic. And then I liked to skate, to snow, to ice skate, to roller skate, to jump rope. I was active. And I think I had a vivid imagination. And I, and I remember I was very giving. You know, I just, I just was giving. And, of course, then we listened to the radio, too. Oh, well, I went to high school. It was sort of interesting with high school. We did junior high. And I went to high school, and my first year I became a discipline problem. Was was asked to leave school three times. Don't come back until your father... You know, you tell your father. And then I graduated in most popular with good grades. So then I 
my mother had died in my our senior year, in my twin and I, and I didn't feel intelligent enough to go to college. I think I was afraid of it. So I went to secretarial school, which was a good school, and it, it probably grounded me. And then after that, I worked for about a year and went to college, Emerson. Well, that's interesting that you were somewhat of a discipline problem in junior high school. Can you tell me more about that? In high school. Oh, in high well, school. Well, it started in junior high. I, you know, I just started acting out. There was alcoholism in the family, um, and it was my mom, who I love very much, and who was just an incredible mother. But there were four of us, and every, we were all acting out. Um, you know, it was just a, a household that was sort of torn apart by the scene, and she was institutionalized a couple of times. And so I, being the youngest child, though a twin, there were four of us within three years, I just acted out as the cut-up, the funny girl, you know, and just did wild things. Not wild in the sense of, you know, addiction abuse or anything like that, but just I would just sort of a lead, a, a person, a teacher in... in um, in my last year of junior high, said, Esther, you're a leader. Why do you lead people the wrong way? <laughs> and, of course, that surprised me because I never thought of myself as that. My father went to Harvard. He was in Harvard at age 16, and then he took a year off to support his family because of the economy. But I think that, that what we picked up is that we could be Cretans, and he was all-knowing, you know, and we weren't very bright or something. So I think that's why I acted out. I think I was afraid, and I didn't know I was intelligent. And so, and my twin was more academic and caring and worked hard, and and I just was the gadabout. So what caused you to change at the end of high school? Well, my I changed in my senior year because I was humiliated. In my junior year, I could I had to... I could become a junior, but I had to stay in my sophomore homeroom, and I was embarrassed, and so I just pulled it together, and then I just start I don't know, I just started pulling it together and getting A's and B's and finding subjects I like, and I had a, we all had boyfriends, and I think that was a stabilizing influence in my life, because it was somebody, you know, cared and looked out for you, so to speak, and then I went to secretarial school, and I just think my natural um, inclination to succeed, and I, I always read, too, so that saved me. So I think I just started growing up. My mother had died when we were 17, and I think that makes, you know, you grow from things like that. I ended uh, a five-year relationship with somebody that I was engaged to. I was supposed to get married at 19, but I was... I was too young. It was, you know, it was hard on him, but I had the hotel and the wedding gown, and I just said, I can't do it. I think just maturity, and then we moved into, from the suburbs, we moved, we had a 12-room house, we moved to an apartment along by the Charles River, and we had a boxer and a pug, and we walked them, and I think it was just the isolation or the loneliness of growing up then with, you know, with a mother who had died and going to secretarial school and my twin had gone off to nursing school and um, my other sister had married. She had been pregnant at first. So, I mean, there were just a lot of hard things that went on in the household uh, from, a, from my point of view. We three girls did pretty well together. So I just think I matured and struggled and 
And I was still very much Catholic. So then I worked for about a year and a half as the secretary for an agency manager. And I, was, I went to a school that produces good skills. So I got a job. And then I just felt I had broken up with this fellow, and I thought I could go back to school. So I went to Emerson College, and that changed me. I went back at 21, which is you feel very old at that age going back to school, but it was a, it was a good experience for me. Why did you pick Emerson? Uh, probably because they let me in. <laughs> there were, it's only the choice was teacher's college then. There were no community colleges. And I guess somebody said Emerson's a good liberal arts school, though it's a theater and drama school. But at the time, I was only dramatic in my personal life, but I was a rabbit on the stage. But still, we had to do certain things. And I went there for about a year and a half, and I made friends, and I liked it. It was, And then we, my father remarried, and happily for him, which was good, but it was very, it was hard. Eventually, I left, and I, I had to go, I had to work. I couldn't continue going to school, so I started working for law firms. I remember being very arrogant and saying, I'll never work for law firms the rest of my life, and I have, you know, I I did it for a long time. Finally, when I was in my 40s, I went back to the university and got my degree. So when I was 21, I went to college. Then Then I started working in law firms, and when I was about 24, it was right after the Cuban crisis, I think I was living in a room in a house outside the city, and it was the time the Boston Strangler was alive and well, and he was attacking old women and murdering them. And the only other person who rented a room in the place I was living was an old woman. And I broke an engagement. I mean, you know, you go through little relationships. And I just knew I had to leave. To, I had to leave. I just felt like emotionally I wasn't going to survive. So I had an aunt who we adored. She was married to my uncle, a little bit of the last of the white imperialists. She said, come on out. So she, and so I put everything in a little Volkswagen uh, and drove up by myself, which was the first time in my life, even though I had been Catholic and prayed and different things, and then questioned Catholicism. This time, driving across, across country by myself, I felt a presence like I was being protected. And I would say that's the first time I felt something like that. So anyhow, I came out and I lived with my aunt, and they lived in a mansion in the Hollywood Hills, claimed they had never seen a working girl before, and I got a job at a very good law firm in downtown L.A. So I started making friends there, but they also had black-tie parties, and so it was sort of a bifurcated existence. And I drank a lot. I drank a lot. And I was really scared underneath it. I'm sure I came across like an airhead stewardess, not that stewardesses are airheads, but as somebody who wasn't paying attention to her internal self. But I think I was very, I mean, for me to leave, I just knew I had to leave. I had to leave town because there was no support. Not that I expected it. I mean, I was on my, but there was just like, that whoever looked at me and my family, it was, except for my sisters, was through a glass darkly. And somehow that was so poisonous to me, I had to get out. 
And it was a very, I'm glad I did, because it changed my life coming to California. So that was right after the Cuban crisis. So then I went to my aunt's, and I stayed there for about a year and a half, and I drank a lot and did this, but I was hired by an attorney at Gibson, Dunn, and Cartwright to work in their Beverly Hills office. We all had to go out and look at the Beverly Hills office. It was a penthouse, and it was, come see the office, what it's like, and Inside, I'm frightened. Outside, I don't show it. And we, I go to lunch with this wonderful lady named Peg, and we go to Frascati's on Wilshire Boulevard, and we're sitting in this restaurant, you know, linen tablecloth, big booth, and she's from California. She said something about the word orgasm, and in my mind, it just went, orgasm, orgasm, all over the you know, restaurant. I was like, oh, my God. She had a voice that would carry a good block, New York block. So, but she befriended me, and she said to me one day, because she worked in the same office, honey, you need therapy. And she told me of a therapist, and I went. And by that time, I'm going with my to-be husband. I went to therapy, and it was up and down and painful, but uh, I did it. And then I got, we got married in the Catholic Church, and I remember banging on the bar top at a place called the Cock and Bull. It was on a bar in Sunset Boulevard saying, we have to raise the, ch- the children Catholic. A year later, I went to visit Peg in Manhattan Beach. And we walked along by the ocean by the Manhattan Beach Pier. And I said, something's wrong. And I had felt it. I had been, and this isn't to knock anybody who's Catholic. I have a lot of friends who are Catholic. But I sat in church and realized the previous week there were things I just didn't believe in. And I thought, well, I believe in Christ, otherwise I'd be Jewish. And I just said, could you show me? Something's wrong. Show me. So the next week I'm down on a Saturday visiting Pagan on the beach, and I said to her, something's wrong. And she said, if I were anything, she said, I would be a Baha'i. And she explained the concept of progressive revelation and she mentioned Baha'u'llah, and I don't really consider myself very linear or highly logical, but my first response was to the concept of progressive revelation is that that's the most logical thing I've ever heard of. So we went back to her apartment, and she liked to cook Madame Wu dishes. She loved cooking, French cooking, too. And so she was in the kitchen cooking away, and she gave me her book by John Farabee, All Things Made New, and I took her little stubby little red pencil and I underlined everything as I read. And I had a beer in my hand and my husband came in, he joined us, and I remember pounding my fist on my knee and I said, God damn it, this is true. (laughs) So then she said she'd find the Baha'is for me. So that Wednesday night, we lived in Mid-Wilshire area and I drove to West Hollywood and I saw this squatty little white building with big black letters saying Baha'i Faith, and I thought, God, how tacky. <laughs> and there was nobody there. And mind you, I'm always frightened inside, but you know, so I drove around, took off in my little beige Volkswagen. I drove around, and I thought, go back. And I went back, and there was a man there who taught the faith, Al Reed, and he has a son, Don Reed. And I just fell into their eyes and their love and... Elaine Reed and I went for about three weeks during this time. 
I made jokes about going out into the desert wearing robes, doing this, but I was pretty much convinced after reading All Things Made New. However, you know, when you do things and you do things where your heart is attracted, you forget. And so the first meeting we had, the first fireside, it was very small, which was wonderful for me. They started with a prayer, and I said, you pray? And I mean, I was just so condescending. So I think the second week he gave me the prayer book, and he said, would you like to open the meeting with a prayer? And I read, create in me a pure heart, oh my God, and renew a tranquil conscience within me. Can you recite that for us? I have to look at my prayer book. Okay, spiritual qualities. Oh, here it is. Okay. Create in me a pure heart, O oh my God, and renew a tranquil conscience within me, O oh my hope. Through the spirit of power, confirm thou me in thy cause, O oh my best beloved, and by the light of thy glory, reveal unto me thy path, O oh thou the goal of my desire. Through the power of thy transcendent might, lift me up unto the heaven of thy holiness, source of my being, and by the breezes of thine eternity, gladden me, O thou who art my God. Let thine everlasting melodies breathe tranquility on me, O my companion, and let the riches of thine ancient countenance deliver me from all except thee, O my master, and let the tidings of the revelation of thine incorruptible essence bring me joy. O thou who art the most manifest of the manifest and the most hidden of the hidden. Baha'u'llah. So you read that prayer? Yes. So I read that prayer, and then I came back the next week on a Wednesday night, and I was saying we, 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 and a couple of hillbillies, really from Tennessee, with just a good mix of people, said, Esther, you say we, what do you think? You know, it sounds like you're a Baha'i, and I thought, I am. So I declared, not really knowing a lot, but I knew in my heart, I just knew deep in my heart who Baha'u'llah was. And at the end of the evening, I went out and sat in my little beige Volkswagen, and my heart felt as if it were bursting into flames. And I thought of my mother, and I've always felt that she led me to this. And I was just, that's, it just burst into flames. And I drove home. And then for the next, I would say the first 19 years, I, I never had tests with Baha'is. I had a woman, Trudy Eisenberg, who just took me under her wing and told me stories forever, and I had to go through a lot of tests because you come in, a lot of us come in, um, well, you know, you need to clean, you just have to have cleanup time of the psyche. And the first thing I realized after I had declared was what a frightened person I was. I hadn't realized that I was so frightened. And the first test, I think, was how can I give up drinking? And I thought, well, I just want to. And Peg said to me, don't you worry, it'll give you up. And she wasn't a Baha'i then, but she became a Baha'i six months later. But she said, you just be the best Esther you can be. And so I just began the process. And I was ablaze. And then I found an older lady I could help with taking her grocery shopping and everything like that. She worked with the blind. and So I just did a lot of things, but the tests were enormous. 
we moved after a year. I sort of prayed my way out of L.A., and we lived in, went to live in Orange County, and I had lived there for the next 20 years. But we first went to Costa Mesa. The people were just so loving and wonderful. I would say that it was good that I declared and nobody backed me up because I was so insecure inside that I would have gone for what do you say, dear, when in fact I needed to develop. I needed to be tested and I needed to be developed. And I feel um, I've had a lot of illness in the last few years, so I'm healthy now, that I feel that our tests are divinely calibrated. I don't mean that it's this vengeful God that has it out for us, but I feel that when something happens, how hard it is if you just go through it. And, of course, for me, I say certain prayers or I might read certain writings and talk to certain friends and have coffee and sometimes just feel the pain then. But I do feel that um, it was the making of me. Uh, and it took a long time for me to believe in myself. It took until my 60s, in between time I lived in Russia and stuff. You said that uh, you declared. So what does that... Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. When one becomes a Baha'i, I, I think it's just an inner acknowledgement. Do you, who is Baha'u'llah? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in his teachings? And the lingo in the faith is declared. And the it's just simply for formal purposes, as I understand it in the United States, you sign a card and you just say, I believe, you know, that declares that you believe in Baha'u'llah. So people casually refer to it as declared. So it's a way of formally recognizing for your, yeah, identifying sort of yourself affirming. as a Baha'i. Yeah. This is who I believe in. This is who I am. doesn't make me better. doesn't make me worse. But it is, I felt like you get a new tool bucket for the age and you go down a different path. And I feel that because I came out of the background I did, which we had a lot of class prejudice, Racial prejudice, I feel like um, that I had to be carved out. It's almost like having barnacles on my soul. And I felt that because of this, um, any kind of adversity has made me far more loving and compassionate. I mean, it's been worth every, every, every hardship. You also mentioned the term fireside. Okay, yeah. Fireside is a term... That is used here. I pride myself on not, on not using terms. Fireside is simply a gathering of people of all colors, sizes, shapes, and they come to listen to a viewpoint on the Baha'i faith. And the viewpoint is the same in many ways and different in others. It depends upon the person who's sharing their knowledge. But you don't have to believe in anything because the person who comes to the fireside must investigate this faith on their own. Nobody make them become anything and, and we're not there in any kind, in any relationship to make a person or to try to convert them we i am there to share but that's and willingly and happily but that's about it and then finally you mentioned that you uh were introduced to the idea of progressive revelation i was wondering if you could describe what that was well you know peg said i remember we were standing in the same you know the waves are coming in it's sort of a breezy day, and she said they believe in God, who's an unknowable essence, and every the periodic intervals in humankind's history, this unknowable essence sends a 
prophet, a messenger, a manifestation who reflects God's attributes at the time and brings in social teachings. And it's the social teachings that change from age to age. That the spiritual teachings stay the same, but more is revealed as mankind progresses to know and to love God. It's the same throughout history. Every prophet or messenger brings this teaching. We should know and love God and carry forth a never-advancing civilization. So she's not Buddha, Zoroaster, and of course my background was Christ, but I had no problem with it. I mean, a lot, because, and I do believe a lot of people are terrifically loyal to their, the person they're following, and they don't want to deny that person, but if you look at the core of all religions, I'd suggest that there's a threat, there's almost like they're like divine luminaries, and there's a silver thread going through them all, and that every age has its own purpose. It was interesting where you said that when you left the fireside and you went into your car Uh and you immediately thought of your mother, I was wondering what the Baha'i point of view is about folks who pass away. Yeah. The souls who pass away, um, generally speaking, they only take the good. And so it isn't like an orthodox set of principles with this hellfire, which we grew up believing in. Hell and purgatory, too. Don't forget purgatory, that big rock you all sit on. So the soul goes on and journeys towards God, and it depends what they've done in their lives. You bring in the good, and you leave the bad. But as a personal thing, and this may sound weird, but I had, my name's Esther. I had an Aunt Esther, and her first son was named Nikki. And Nikki died as, as like, 10 years old. And I'm sure it was horrible, horrible, horrible for them. And it's funny because I named my son Nicholas, not thinking. But I somehow feel that the generations go on and they hear about things. If they don't hear about something here, they'll hear about it in the other worlds of God. And I feel like it was this young boy who probably was the first in my family to hear. And then I feel like my mother went through certain conditions, and then became aware of the faith. I just feel that she was the connection. Don't ask me why. I was very close to her. I mean, I loved her. She was a very sensitive woman. Of course, I took on her victim mode, too, and, you know, the the pain. and, And in today's day and age, you can work that out through therapy, through everything. But uh, because we have to talk, we have to, toss off the old uh, crippling views that no longer serve us. Now these worlds of God that you are referring to, are these like physical worlds? It's like the body dies because it's physical, but the body, there's a soul, and that's basically where body and soul, and the soul continues through the, it's a dimension, it's an unseen dimension, but it's, the soul cannot deconstruct, and at the moment of death, it will, um, be released. It's almost like I think of Kurt Vonnegut. They showed a car, uh, a graphic drawing after he died, and it showed a giant bird cage with the door open, and it was empty because he had left. It's almost like we're in a cage. The door opens, and we fly on. Depending, of course, on on our deeds and you know how we've contributed to the well-being of society. You said that you were tested. After yeah, testing is something, because not everybody likes that word. 
I think that when we go through life, a lot of people think when something happens to them, they're punished. There were certainly people, God loved them, after 9-11 said, why is God doing this to me? And, I mean, we're living on a crazy planet, in my opinion, so we're doing it to each other. But I think that it's like going to college, like we're in a university, and we prepare for exams. In this case, we prepare for exams of knowledge, wisdom, compassion, service to humankind, trying to eradicate racism, classism. In other words, living our life for the well-being of humanity. And sometimes when you do that, you fall down. I think that my personal conditions or struggles, tests could be another word for struggle, but the idea of tests is you pass them eventually. It's like going around a mountain and you have to, say if I were alcoholic, which I wasn't, but I... You know, I do have addictions that I don't practice, but if you grow up in an alcoholic family, you will. You're going around the mountain and say I've taken, you know, I've had backbiting and I've done that, which is gossiping or saying horrible things about another person. Say I'm pretty much, you know, I don't do that. I might now and then because I'm human. But say I go around the mountain and there's the Milky Way candy bar and I just can't give up sugar and it's detrimental to me. But I haven't. Well, eventually, if I go around the mountain enough and I'm aware of it, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. So I pass the Milky Way bar test. You know, it's that we are here. The planet is not uh, an art gallery. It's a workshop. And that with the purpose of physical reality is that he has made everything in the universe from the atom on up to for our use and edification. The catch is to use it for the well-being of humanity. For instance, if we have power, you must use power as service. There's been a paradigm shift. We're living in a world now where there's a misuse of power probably everywhere. If power is used for the betterment of humankind, and I don't mean Hitler's concept of the betterment of humankind, I mean something that eradicates racism, sexism, where and the extremes of wealth and poverty aren't there, and everybody gets educated, you know, the different principles, uh, the equality of women and men, the equal relationship between science and religion. If we all contribute to the well-being, Baha'i or not Baha'i, it doesn't matter, on that level. The Baha'is are consciously working for it, but, you know, there are millions of people who are working on the conditions in the world to help it. We only get the bad stuff on the news, I think, but there are wonderful souls out there doing a lot of good. Now, you said you went to Russia. Can you talk about that? Yes. I met this wonderful man. I was divorced for about 10 years. I went back to UC Irvine's college. I was an English major because I spoke English, and and my son went with me, and we lived in student housing on campus. And then I did, and that that changed my life, too, because I did, I written two books, and I did a lot of emphasis on writing. I mean, it just opened the way for me. After I graduated, I went to education classes at, at UCI, but I couldn't pass the math portion of the state exam called CBEST. So I took it twice, and I couldn't continue in the education department, which I hated. I didn't like it. So anyhow, but I took a journalism course during that time. So that was good. But so I had to go back to work. I had a child to support. 
And I couldn't stay at school anymore, and I had to move. So um, I had called an old a boss I had worked for a long time ago, and he said, come work for a reference. He said, come work for me. That was in Century City. And then Peg, enter Peg, who had become a Baha'i and done a million things, said, you can stay with me. And my son did not want to come with me, so he went to live with his dad, but that was just for a short period of time. And about two weeks later, I met this man who reminded me of a wind-up Gandhi toy. And I met him at our Baha'i gatherings, which are held every 19 days, uh, referred to as, from the Baha'is as a feast, but it's just really a spiritual get-together, a chatting and fellowship. And um, I ran into him again two weeks later, and he asked me if I'd like to have coffee. And as we were walking along, I discovered he was from western New York. I'm from Boston. And he had once had a pug dog named Killer, and I had had a pug, a pug dog named King, and I knew this is the beginning of a spiritual relationship. But anyhow, so we just hit it off. We were just, we both remember radio. We both are from Catholic backgrounds. And I had been a Baha'i for about 20 years, and he had discovered the faith two weeks before he met me. And we just, so we married pretty quickly. And then we stayed in Los And I also had an immune system illness. In 1980, I got Epstein-Barr really badly. But I crawled through school, and I had to work, too, so I did it. I just crawled through. First, we were living in Manhattan Beach, which was very nice, because Bill had a good income then, and we sponsored a young man from Ethiopia, and Nick was living with us, too, and it was good. And then somebody in our community, outside the community, said he was from Lawndale, and he said, nobody ever moves to Lawndale. They said, we're too poor, and I looked at Bill, and he looked at me, and we said, we have to put our money where our mouth is. So we went and lived in Lawndale, which is pretty cemented over, but we found a little place. I started writing more, and we got our pug dog, so I was happy. And my son Nick went to spread his wings at 18. And then in 89, we could see the aerospace where Bill worked was going down, and I said, we should downsize. So we got rid of his car, and we bought a Volkswagen bus where the owner had put in a Porsche engine. And then we decided we would live in Seattle because we could afford to buy a house. So we put the kitty, the pug dog, ourselves, furniture. We moved to Seattle and bought a little house. And while we're there, it was the size of a postage stamp. But way down the hill was a stream, and it was nice. And Bill was there because he had a job there. And that fell through. So then we thought, oh, boy. And I started freelancing in the law firm. And I was, I was afraid to get on the bus. I felt like, and I've said this in one of my essays, I felt like a cat on the way to the public bath. I was like, oh, my God. And people aren't always kind to the freelancer. They don't answer any questions. You're on your own. you know. So Anyhow, so we're, I'm working there, and his job fell through, and then... A friend called us and said, there's a group of people, young people, going to Siberia, and they really need an older couple, we're in our 50s, to not chaperone, but be there as a balance. So Bill called somebody about it down in Manhattan Beach, and he reaffirmed it. And so Bill, he said, well, I have to check with Esther, and he hung up, and he said, they want an older couple to go to Russia. And I said, yes. 
now I'm a wimp. Underneath my, you know, I can do this, I can climb over buildings, I'm a wimp. And a friend of mine has said to me, you're half wimp and half lioness. And that was true at the time. Now I'm more lioness, but moderated. So we went with them, about 20 youth, from Moscow to Lanude, Russia, where the biggest status head of Lenin sits in the square, along with the KGB offices. And then we went to Lake Baikal, and then we went back into the Ukraine, and I've written a book about it, and it's called Without a Net, A Sojourn in Russia. And my writing name is Esther Bradley Detali. And while we were in the Ukraine, I, got, I was very sick. I had a heart. I might have had pneumonia. I don't know. A lady heard me coughing and came by and gave me some Russian remedy. Meanwhile, the kids are out there. We're at this camp where they use Muslim to put over the window so the mosquitoes don't bite you up. We didn't have any Muslim. We didn't know. But the, the, the Russian, Ukrainian people were very friendly. And we were, too. We were roughing it, and we had to do it, and that was it, and that was fine. But the kids were giving concerts every night, and this lady, you know, came by one morning when I had been up all night coughing, gave me the medicine, and it turns out weeks later, we so we lose contact with them because we go back into Kiev or Kiev, as they say, and we're doing stuff with students and just doing a lot of stuff, and I'm just like the frog in the chorus. I'm in the back row singing something, but you can't hear me, so the the uh, choir is saved. The lady ran that who gave me medicine, her husband was a professor on campus. Anyhow, she ran into some of the youth, and she invited them to her flat. And then she told them she had a dream, and the dream she had was of Bill and myself coming to talk about something. So she knew it was important. And there's more. It's called Laura's L-O-R-A, dream in my book. But so then so we we stayed there and then we went back to Moscow and and we went to Lvov where it was supposed to be a political hotbed and it, that there was the civil war going on. It turned one side it turned out one side of the park was angry with the other side of the park, but the physical conditions were like after the war. They were, it was we stayed in practically rubble. But, uh, but it was good. Every time conditions got physically hard, we met more interesting people. And we sang a lot. We sang a lot of Russian songs. And we just sang a lot with people just at night. They didn't have any television or this or that. And the short food was a shortage. Napkins were short. Everything was a shortage. So. so then we go home because my twin's husband is dying. And we go home to Seattle, and I just say to God, let me have at least one night in home to open my mail. And I got the one night, and then I flew down to be with my twin. Her husband had died. And then um, Bill came down in the Volkswagen bus with Puggy. So then we, what we did was we went around the United States sharing about our trip to Russia. And we were saying to some of the Baha'is, you should go. And when you tell somebody they should do something, you're the one that should do it. So we decided we'll do it. So we were swinging into Chicago, and we went up to the office where we consulted with certain people about living in Ukraine or Russia or somewhere. Could we be of service? And you pay for these things all by yourself. It's your own. But Russia was 
12-cent train ride, so it wasn't overly expensive. So um, we volunteered to go, and the woman said, she said, could you stay? There's a breakfast tomorrow and all the different people from Canada and um, our national administrative body are going to be here along with the staff. And so we got there in the morning and went to this place where they're having a lecture, and we sit in practically the last row, and there's a man, Jim Nelson, who has since passed, wonderful man, got up and started talking about sacrifice and that there was a couple who was an example of sacrifice. And then he mentioned us, and I didn't. I just was floored. And uh, so anybody, of course, turns around, 100 eyes of love, clapping. Oh, aren't they wonderful? So I said to Bill, well, we either have to go to a phone booth in New York and hide out for a year, or we're going. And so we went to Russia to live shortly after that. Now, I think before we went, the IRS audited us, so we had to sell everything because there had been a mistake made on our tax return, and we had to give them a lot of money. So we sold the house, we sold the furniture, we packed up the Volkswagen bus, we put Puggy in the middle, he sat in the middle on an ice chest, and we headed out of Seattle listening to Mozart. And we went back to Western New York, and then we flew to the Ukraine. And we went to a city. First we went to Kiev. I think we flew directly into Kiev or Kiev and stayed there for a week with Laura in her flat. And then somebody came down. We went to a city called Dnepropetrovsk. We call it Dnieper. And it was a city that had been closed to outside traffic, even Russian traffic, because I think they did nuclear stuff. I forget. But we picked that. We had a choice between that or Kharkov. And we picked Nepopetros because we knew somebody we had just met who had a relative there. And, but mainly, this is tell you how mature we are, because the name was impossible to pronounce, impossible to spell, and impossible to remember. I said to Bill, we're going there. So that's what we did. We went there, and it was like going back into the 40s after the war. Now, mind you, I'm a wimp, but I've got Bill with me. And he's my protector. So it was just a series of fascinating adventures, stepping off the train, listening to Russian bands play, and speaking in a little bit of English. I mean, funny things happened, sad things happened, wonderful things happened. And uh, so we were there about a year, and then we went home that summer, but then we came back. They, we were asked by administration in Ukraine to come back, we went back to the Ukraine. By this time, we were living with a young girl named Ina who wanted to learn English better because she taught it at the schools, and we were like three slippers in a closet. She called us her babies, and she'd say, my babies, we'd come in at 11, you have to walk up dark hills with no electricity, and it's hard to get, you didn't, we didn't take too many taxes, and you had to change buses and trolleys, and half the time they didn't work. So we'd get home late. She'd say, never speak English to anybody. And she'd go, my babies, where have you been? So, we, And then we were asked to go to Minsk. So we did that. And it, the interesting thing is Ina had a dream that her babies were moving. You know, so we went to Minsk, and that was another, that was another type of living in Belarus. And you form deep 
friendships. I have a very deep friendship in Ukraine, and Nepopetrovsk, she's retired now, but with a librarian, and I gave free English classes. I mean, we just went and talked to a lot of schools. We were very friendly. Uh, and then if anybody wanted to know about the Baha'i faith, we just said, come to our gatherings on Sunday afternoon. You meet all manner of people. You meet very damaged people. But they were very kind to us and very loving. And we went back to Minsk to have a very full year. And then we came back to Seattle and I had therapy because I really struggled I, and I really came to... I think when you sacrifice yourself, whether you're any kind of religion, you sacrifice yourself for something good, you may have trauma later, but that trauma turns out to be a blessing because it brings up old stuff that needed to come up. And I would say since pioneering and since therapy and since open heart surgery and this illness or that illness and always loving being a Baha'i that I finally got to like myself mm-hmm. because I came from an era where women were demeaned. or they, I mean, it was just, you know, it wasn't, it was just the era. Women weren't important and there's a lot of self-hatred that can happen if you think you're born with the original sin and this and that. So, but I would say what it sums up for me is that mysticism is going through the grit and doing it because you love something higher than yourself. And the rewards or the results are incredible. Esther, how is it that you supported yourself when you were overseas? Well, we had some cash, so we didn't work. I wasn't healthy enough to work. I sort of had a, you know, I really wasn't strong when I left. And I had a heart condition. I had no idea. So we didn't work. And, you know, a train ride between cities was 12 cents. There wasn't a lot of food, but if it was there, we had it. So it didn't, and in Minsk, our apartment cost us $50 a month. Now it is much more expensive. But, and then we homestayed with people with people we knew, so, and people homestayed with us. So you just helped each other out, and we, made, we didn't hang around with diplomats. We were ordinary people there. But, of course, we were ordinary people before, during, and at. We were even there during the puts or the coup, but we, were, we always knew we could go home. And the Russians or the Ukrainians couldn't go. And they're very, they're an intellectual people. They're very proud people. The very giving people. So, I mean, now it was the difference. We could leave, but the, you, could, you knew the oppression. You knew. I was deathly ill on my pet last plane trip home. We went through Shannon Airport. And, I mean, I, by then I'm, like, shoveled together and just not, not in good shape. And, you know, did that. So it was an adventure. But, I mean, there's so much more. I wrote a book about it. Is this the same book, Without a Net? Without a net, and then I have another book that I have just published a year ago. The other book is "You Carry the Heavy Stuff," and it's my latest writing. And I teach creative writing, and I, I like this writing. I've trained under some very good people. It started out as a book about writing, but it turned out to be something else, and it has a lot of themes in it, and it has a lot of different styles of writing. Where can one find this book? Well, they can find it on Amazon or Lulu, L-U-L-U dot com, or my website, which is SorryNet. But they can get it from me, so I have a lot of them. So they can email me 
at estherbill at gmail.com. And I won't charge complete full rate. But if they go to the website on Lulu and punch in, uh, you carry the heavy stuff, or the sorry Nat Press, one word, they can read some of the pages. Amazon didn't put the pages on right, so you can glance into them. But I really feel very good about this book. And it's written for people who are not just the highs. I write to everybody, and I'm a contemporary writer. I'm gutsy, and I'm heart, heartful, and I have serious essays. But they're not political, but they're serious. And then I have funny essays, because I'm funny. It's so serious. <laughs> Is there a favorite that you could share with us before we close? Yeah, I brought my book. The one called Mirror Image. It's an exercise. You look in the mirror and you describe what you see. It's a writing exercise. Mirror image. I see determination looking at me from the mirror. This mirror eclipses the lower portion of my body. I see a perennial question. Who are we behind the eyes? I see eyes finger-tipping through the world and eyes that respond to dreams which whisper my name in the night. Then again, I see eyes which laughed at a bumper sticker, visualized Ballard. And to tell the truth, I see strength emerging from the delicacies of an evening ruined by an email from someone scolding my fragility of life, my trusting God but tie your camel, Ilan. I see generations of Irish, those people I disparage in my younger mind's eye, those people who, as they age, look like beagles against brush velvet. I see my Irish genetics and heredity carve out its claim, pushing cultural influence aside. I see a woman with, set with a sadness which smells like tin, hammered, punctured with dents, and emotions raw as a child's great knee. But don't tell your parents, because only the lectures follow. And I see courage and a straight back and a willingness to look down gun barrels and see blossoms of flowers at the end. I see tears in my throat sliding over my heart. These tears form a thin veil of water caught in the sunlight against a heart which feels like concrete. I see what used to be a bruised peach pit centered in my heart, but now capable of holding no grudge. I remember who is riding the future. And I remember Ukrainian train rides at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I remember crawling across train tracks lugging books. I remember cookies and then talks about who is writing the future as I traveled through eastern Ukraine with my interpreter, who was a Tatar, but more than a Tatar, a soul sister. And now with the smell of a tuna sandwich and someone preparing lunch, I realize this was the week to work on old things. Others' issues, others' scolding. I feel a deliberation and purpose arise, like an un unfolding circular staircase within, climbing to the top of the sky. And I might pleat the moon in gratitude for a friend's visit, but I would never undress this moon, no. My New England standards scream modesty. I see someone who misses a pug. And what about a pug who could sing La Boheme? But then again, a warm smell of wheat toast filters the air, and I will eat Ralph's grocery tuna, tart, crispy. Bill is fixing lunch, 
and I feel his love fill these rooms. I know that I will never hate, because hate tastes like eating old peeling paint. I will taste, though. I will also learn not to retain hurt, because retaining hurt seems like taking a medicine which pulls the tongue into curls and feels like an old dead tree. Going beyond this hurt will turn into fields of flowers and rainbows. Ultimately, I see wisdom, a rainbow of incandescence and radiance, and I realize this is just a glimpse of a soul after a rough week. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I'm glad you like it. I do, I do very much. You can buy the book if you'd like. Okay. So, Esther, thank you so much for sharing your story and your work. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Esther Bradley Detali, world traveler and author of two books, Without a Net, A Sojourn in Russia, and You Carry the Heavy Stuff. She also has a blog at sorrynat.wordpress.com. That's G-N-A-T as in the small bug. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org. We can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.